Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 59 of the Australian Hiker podcast. Today's topic is geocaching. For many of us, we have a, we can, may have a number of reasons about why we hike. It may be to be in the outdoors. It may be because we want to get away from technology. It may be we just want the exercise. But for some people, they want just something a bit additional to keep them active and, and amused. And there are a number of different alternatives and options to do this. And one of those is geocaching. So in today's episode, we're going to look at what geocaching is, um, how to get into it, where do you find geocaches, uh, and some of the alternatives or the modern versions of geocaching that are, are coming becoming available more commonly. What is geocaching? The best way to think about geocaching is that it's a form of treasure hunting, uh, using uh, some sort of GPS-enabled device. And this might be a mobile phone or a GPS, which some of us may or may not have. Geocaching, at its most common, involves finding a cache or a, a stash, for want of a better term, um, or a, a series of objects that are hidden, sometimes in plain sight, sometimes not so plain, uh, and these will vary in size from being things that are quite large uh, uh, to those that are quite small. Typically, geocaches will contain a logbook of some sort and will often have a series of treasures. And these might be things like toy cars or plastic animals, something along those sort of lines. The aim is to locate the, uh, the cache and mark it off in your own online log. And if you feel so inclined, take something and leave something of equal or greater value. So where did geocaching begin? In 2003, or up until 2003, the GPS system or global positioning system was originally meant as a military tool. Uh, and while we as recreational users had access to, to uh, GPS systems, the accuracy wasn't particularly good. Uh, the aim being that the uh, US um, put a, a margin of error of roughly about 100 metres into it, so it meant that it couldn't be used by anybody else for military purposes. So in 2003, this error known as selective availability was turned off, and recreational users could now enjoy an accuracy of around about 10 metres. And in May of 2003, uh, a gentleman called David Ulmer hit a number of items near Portland, Oregon, and this is where geocaching began. So why do people geocache? Now, I must admit, I know a number of people that geocache, but I wasn't really aware up until I did a bit of research uh, for this podcast about what the crossover between geocaching and hiking was. So to get an idea, uh, I ran an online survey on our Facebook page, and while the results that we got weren't statistically significant, they were interesting all the same. So 65% of the respondents to the survey uh, did 
geocaching of some form. What did surprise me was that 100% of respondents uh, geocached as an add-on to hiking as opposed to being the reason that they hiked. And that did surprise me. But I suppose given that we are a hiking website um, and not a geocaching website, I suppose that the, the I, I thought the number would be big. I didn't expect to be uh, 100%. So the majority of people use their phones as their main GPS device to geocache. Um, but there were still a large percentage that used uh, GPSs or both GPSs and phones. Where the statistics did get interesting seemed to be there seemed to be an even spread of people that geocached that ranged from people who had just started out up to people who had been doing it for more than five years, and that was around about 46% of people. So there were people just coming on board, people had been doing it for you know, six months, a year, and then, as I said, a number of people had been doing it for more than five years. Yeah, I think some of those stats were um, a bit surprising, and as you said, uh, the connection between geocaching and hiking was probably a little bit obvious since you were asking hikers about geocaching, um, but still um, some interesting results and um, certainly something that we hadn't um, pursued up until very recently. Now, from my perspective, I, uh, I don't geocache that often and I use it just as something different when I go out for a lunchtime walk. And when I say lunchtime walk, I'm normally talking around about three and a half to four kilometres. And this just keeps, keeps me, uh, um, I don't know, it just keeps me, gives me a bit of a, uh, an incentive to go somewhere a bit different rather than doing the same walk all the time. And also, I, I tend to use it when I'm trying to keep the nieces and nephews amused. Now, what equipment do you need to go geocaching? Now, to geocache, you do need a certain amount of gear, uh, and this involves either a smartphone uh, with GPS ability uh, or a GPS. And given these days the majority of people that are carrying a mobile phone tend to be carrying smartphones, there really is no need to purchase anything extra on top of what you already have. The geocaching app itself, uh, which I'll go through and put the link to the show notes, um, is free to download although there are premium options if you want all the bells and the whistles. To get started, you go online to geocaching.com and set up an account. And again, setting up an account is free. Probably the hardest part is choosing a username. You can choose to upgrade to a premium account for around about $33 Australian a year. And this provides a range of additional features, including some caches that are classed as premium caches that only people who have the premium account can access. Um, it also provides um, offline maps, so when your your uh, your phone isn't ha- doesn't have range or access, um, and it also provides um, other features in addition as well. For most people, I'd suggest starting off with a basic free app, and if you really decide you're into it, then spend the extra money on the premium account. There is geocaching.com.au, and this is an Australian-based website that offers a free caching app. Now, the app itself is fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But I find from an ease of use point of view, the geocaching.com, the American app, is probably an easier app to go through and use and to access. So if you don't have much computer ability or just don't want something that all you've got to do is just turn it on and away you go, that's probably an easier app to go through and use. But either way, the choice is yours. Now, how do you find caches? 
Geocaches are hidden in a range of places, including from under bushes and rocks, and basically wherever you can imagine it, you will find a cache, including underwater. Geocaches are also present in Antarctica, so pretty much anywhere in the world you're likely to find a geocache. There are approximately around about 3 million geocaches um, worldwide, so uh, I know looking at the map in our local area, there are literally hundreds within close proximity, um, probably a bit more than walking distance, but certainly I'd, I could keep myself busy for, uh, for months trying to find all of them. Getting close to a geocache is relatively easy. Um, so basically you just, go, you just go through online and select which cache you want to go to. You um, then go through and get directions to it. And what this will typically do on the app is give you a straight line. Now, typically it's like any map. You're not going to be able to walk across water or through roads or through houses or buildings. So you need to follow paths um, and this means this gives you a bit of interpretation skill to find out what the best way to get to the source is. The geocaching apps tend to ha- will have um, compass uh, bearings or headings on them, uh, and they will tell you how far away you are from a site. And in fact, the app will actually come up and give you a little a little notification that you're close to where you are. Getting close is the easy bit. Now, for me, the first two caches that I went through and tried to find, I got to the within um, a few meters or, or within five to ten meters quite quickly. But certainly, getting down to that last few meters was the difficult part. So, the size um, and how well the cache is hidden all contribute to how difficult a cache can become to find. And one of the things that we found was that. While we had an indicator that said we were right on the spot, um, in reality we weren't right on the spot um, and we had to search around a little bit uh, within a few metres of um, the GPS spot. I guess partly that perhaps is the error um, in the GPS and partly that's uh, the obvious thing of looking somewhere uh, to conceal Uh, a little container or conceal the geocache. So apart from the size and how well hidden all the the cache is, all contributes to the difficulty of finding the cache. And this can be quite maddening at times with the camouflaging meeting two purposes. The first is to uh, make the cache less obvious for the general public. So kids or somebody just doesn't, doesn't pick it up thinking it's a bit of a rubbish and throw it away. And the second is to create a bit more of a challenge. So as I mentioned, the first two caches that I found, I was uh, went out at lunchtime, I had my work clothes on, I really didn't fi- feel like getting down on my hands and knees to, to get underneath a bush to find it, uh, and ultimately I thought, there's nothing else I can really do, I've just got to have a look under the bush, and sure enough, that's where it was. The second one was hidden, well hidden under bark, uh, and um, it was... One of those sort of things that because there's, it's never 100% perfectly accurate, you're going to be within a few metres, uh, it was finding out which bit of bark I was supposed to be looking under. Um, so the time to take to find my first two caches really was more about um, the fine detail, not the actual getting to the rough location itself. There are a number of different types of geocaches, uh, but certainly there are probably a main few that you're likely to come across. And looking at uh, the local map uh, to do 
this uh, podcast, um, probably ninety percent of uh, or ninety five percent of the uh, the types all fell within a couple of categories within the Canberra region. The first one is the traditional cache, and this was the original caches that were placed in two thousand and three, and they typically have a single waypoint that identifies the cache location. They also have will have a logbook or a piece of paper and a writing implement uh, to write your name down to say who you are and when you found it. Uh, and they'll have some sort of trinkets or treasure, if you like, where it might be toy cars or plastic animals or something along those sort of lines. The idea being that you will take uh, one item out of a, a cache and replace it with another of equal or greater value. The second type of cache is a multi-cache or multiple cache. These caches usually require you going through more than one location to reach your goal. And I went down um, at lunchtime to the one closest to me to have a look at it, um, and it directed me towards the first point, which was quite easy to find. And then uh, at the first point, it was actually required to read the uh, the lettering on the inscription uh, that was on this object. Uh, and assign points value to each of the, the letters that were identified, and that would tell you how far away the cache was. That sounds as if it's getting a bit hard now. <laughs> the um, These sort of caches, again, it's it's designed not to be easy. It's designed to have a bit more effort uh, to keep you a bit more involved. The third main type of cache is a mystery cache, and the best way to think of this type of cache is a cryptic crossword where you'll often need to solve riddles or puzzles to determine exactly where the cache is. So there'll be no photos, there'll be no clues. Really, you'll have a puzzle to solve that will tell you, okay, this is where you need to head. Whereas the typical or traditional cache, you'll have a set of a heading, and a GPS heading or bearing that you'll know exactly where it is within the space of a few metres, rather than having to work it out. In the treasure hunting type uh, of activity, there are other things that that uh, classes being similar to geocaching, but are different enough that are considered different activities. And for many of them, they've been around for quite a lot longer. The first is orienteering, which is essentially a cross-country race, and armed with a map and a compass, you go through various control points. And many of us would have seen these um, orange and white uh, marker. Uh, uh, flags. Um, they have a hole punch attached to them, and you navigate to a point, you uh, go through and punch a card that says you've been there, and then you move on to the next one. This is a race, and the goal is to get around the course in the quickest possible time. Something that's uniquely Australian is Roganing, uh, and again, this is there are Roganing World Championships, and Roganing was created in 1968. And it turns takes orienteering and turns it into a full-on outdoors endurance activity. So in Roganing, you've got teams of two to five people armed with a map and an analog compass, searching for checkpoints, just like orienteering. Um, and there's a fixed time to complete the course. The thing with Roganing is the teams choose their own course and how fast and how far they will travel. So the traditional Rogaine is 24 hours long, uh, but shorter 6, 8 and 12 hour events exist. And I know certainly in um, the coming month or so, uh, the, uh, we've got the, the, the ACT championships uh, coming up. 
um, and this is a 24-hour event. Now, the aim here is you've got a time frame to be back at the starting point, and you try and get as many points as possible. So whether you try and do all the uh, marker points or the ones at the highest score, or you might decide to take it a bit easier, it's really up to you. So in this case, it's not just navigation skill, there's also a degree of strategy involved as well. The uh, last type of um, alternate option, if you like, is um, uh, augmented reality uh, treasure hunting. And this, by here, we're talking about Pokemon Go. Now, unless you've been living off the grid or off planet in, in 2016, you will have at least heard of Pokemon Go. And this involves wandering around with a mobile phone uh, and the mobile phone will actually place mythical creatures called Pokemon in the camera view. So you see what you're seeing through the camera and there are Pokemon that are actually appear in that shot. And I'll, if you have a look at the uh, written article for this, uh, this podcast, there is a, a series of images that show you what some of the screenshots look like. Now, the game starts off pretty easy. In fact, you can catch the first few Pokemon, at least in a virtual sense, inside your house, uh, without a, so you don't have to actually leave home. But once you get past that point, you're directed to a local to a map that says there are some within your suburb or down the street, and you have to go and find these things. So certainly in 2016, when this first hit the market, there were kids and adults um, wandering around the suburbs with their parents um, catching Pokemon. And walking into street lamps and potentially almost getting run over, I think, is what was happening. And there were cases where where, where hundreds of people were turning up to some sites at the same time and blocking, blocking traffics and blocking the road. So this is... a. Uh, this game starts off, as I said, pretty easy, uh, but it really does get you out and about through suburbs, city, bushland and parkland and more. One of the galleries near us had a whole lot of uh, Pokemon um, planted inside, which caused a bit of a stir, but uh, I, I think they managed to um, uh, sort that one out. So, again, it's one of these sort of things, whether you like it or not, when it reared its head, it did drag millions of kids not necessarily away from their screens, but at least <laughs> at least it got them outdoors. Um, and the phenomenon, while it seems to have quietened down, supposedly 2018 is the year of aug- augmented reality. So we've gone past virtual reality, we've moved on to augmented reality, and apparently this is the year the tech companies uh, really make inroads into this market. So we've got other games, so Jurassic World Alive, is soon to hit the market. And this is where you go and find dinosaurs uh, and you can actually create dinosaurs by by blending what you've found together. Uh, unfortunately, with this one, you don't have to go outside. You have the, the virtual ability to send drones out to find these dinosaurs without leaving the house. <laughs> um, but again, this is supposedly the next big thing that they're expecting to come to the market in the next month or so. So while it may not get the kids, and for that matter, many adults away from an electronic screen, at least it does get them out into nature. So just as a final word on this, if you have kids that struggle to get outside, uh, then consider geocaching as an option to create a bit of enthusiasm. I mean, what child, and for that matter, what adult doesn't like doing a treasure hunt? Um, Geocaching... Um, is unlikely to ever be the main reason that I get outdoors, 
but it does provide a bit of variety, as I said, that allows me to vary my lunchtime walk and forces me to go in different directions rather than just going into autopilot and, and doing the same walk every day. And it does get you uh, looking closely at what's around you and uh, paying a little bit more attention. And, it, you know, it is a little bit of fun. It can be a bit frustrating, but um, it is a bit of fun as well. Okay, so as, uh, as we said, give it a try. Who knows, you may get hooked. One of the things we're keen to do is answer your questions. We do get a few questions through uh, Facebook and um, we tend to answer them online. Uh, we'd also like to start answering them as part of the podcast. So put your questions to us uh, through Facebook or even go to the website um, and use the, the contact uh, connection. And uh, each uh podcast, we'll pick out one or two and we'll answer them as best we can. Um, we're quite happy to do a bit of research for you and to um, get a full answer and we're probably not guaranteed to have all the information and all the ins and outs, but we'll definitely do our best. So that could be a bit of a challenge for you to see if you can stump us. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. Next week's episode is our bonus episode for March 2018, and we're actually going to be interviewing or talking to a podiatrist about foot and lower limb issues, which is some of the biggest problems that uh, we as hikers tend to have that can impact on whether we can keep on the trail or not. So it's worthwhile having a listen to next week's episode uh, if you've ever had feet and lower limb issues. Yes, I have. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> well, feet issues anyway. So that's all for now. Bye from me. And bye from me.